Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey. A sense of belonging, the subjective feeling of deep connection with social groups, physical places, and individual and collective experiences is a fundamental human need that predicts numerous mental, physical, social, economic, and behavioral outcomes. My starting point today is belonging. Belonging. I have um, three clusters uh, that I want to process about belonging. I have on a piece of paper. I do have a piece of paper um, with three clusters of notes. Not a lot, but a little bit. One is uh, one cluster is belonging shifts. Belonging shifts. S H I F T S. The second one is belonging and self-actualization. And then the third one is belonging, the essence of belonging. Like, what does it even mean? What does that even mean? And um, the belonging and shifts will talk, will, when I get into that on the other side, it's going to explain to you why this theme of belonging is coming up. Um, like there are four subpoints to that. But I do suspect, I do suspect that my recent interest in solo polyamory <laughs> is, is stirring a lot of this up about, oh, you know, because it's making me rethink. It's, it just, it's making me rethink. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know another way of saying it. It's just making me rethink this idea of belonging. It's not the only thing that's influencing this reflection on belonging. Um, and actually, solo polyamory is not even the, on the list in in that cluster. But I I suspect that that is that literature that I've been reading, the podcasts that I've been listening, thinking to, and these other points on the paper are um, have influenced my thinking around belonging. At least have made me curious. So I have found an article um, that I'm I'd like to read to you, which you just saw me read or heard me read the introduction. I've already tweeted it. It's uh, produced by the National Library of Medicine, and the title is Belonging, a Review of Conceptual Issues and Integrative Framework and Directions for Future Research. So it is a long text. I've only read half of it, and um, so I want to share with you. So if the second half is crappy, um, I don't know. I haven't read it yet. But I found the first half to be deeply um, uh, uh, satisfying and um and so, yeah, I have three clusters and I don't normally have things written out when I do the prod- podcast, but because I've been on a break for so, for a month um, and I want to make sure that I stay true to the con- the the notion of belonging because I have a lot that I want to share with you that um, beyond belonging and I just really want to help myself stay focused. So I did take a piece of paper and I wrote down those three clusters, okay? So much to say. I'm going to do some uh, housekeeping on the other side of my disclaimers. But hey, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory 
The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which basically means I have an intellectual sensitivity of, uh, for, co- for social constructs of power, such as race, class, gender, sex, sexuality, just to name a few. This project is unedited and is unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Okay. So, yay, it is season seven. We are back uh, for another season. I did seriously consider if I've reached the end of this project just because um, I've been going back listening to old episodes and I can definitely hear patterns. Things are on repeat, and um, so there are very, very strong themes, very strong themes. And so there's a part of me that's, that feels like, I don't know if there's any more learning for me to do. <laughs> that's not true. I'm always going to learn. I'm an NI Dom. But I don't know if I'm going to be learning. I don't, I don't, I no longer feel the need to learn themes related to the first half of life. I don't know if that's true, but that's something that I feel. You have to go back to listen to other episodes to understand what I mean by first half of life, second half of life, which I attribute my understanding to Father Richard Rohr. Check out his material on that. So I feel pretty resolved about the first half of life. I'm all about second half of life right now and being the woman that I of my own dreams, the woman of my own dreams. And so I think that there is still learning to do for that just because I was... I was groomed and socialized under a different regime. And this project has been a place for self-parenting, self-parenting. Um, and uh, I, I think that they're the woman I am meant to be, the woman that I want to be. I think there's still some learning for me to do for going forward. But in terms of learning things of my past, I fairly, fairly, I don't want to contradict myself, <laughs> fairly sure. I could just see me coming back next week like, scratch that. I still have a lot to learn about my past. But <laughs> if I do, I don't think it's a lot. <laughs> I think I'm reaching the end of trying to learn the first half of life. I think I'm ready to set my sights on being the woman of my own dreams, being the woman that I really believe I was born to be. Right? Right. And so, um, this project allows me to do that. And, um, I don't even know why I went into that, that little rabbit hole, but we are at season seven and I'm excited. Oh, I know why, because I was, th- I had did I was thinking maybe it's time to let the project go. I don't, I think, I think these, uh, episodes, these reflections are really a place of learning for me. Hopefully you're learning as well, but there is a place of learning for me. And because I the woman that I want to be is not the woman I was raised to be. It's not the woman I was socialized to be. I, I'm going to take some of that. Right? I'm not throwing out my whole past. But there's a lot of learning and I, and uh, to yet yeah, for me. And because there's a lot of learning, then this project needs to continue. So we are back with a, a season seven. I am going to be holding at 25 episodes a season. So the first year, because uh, we've just ended year three, the first year I did 100 episodes in a season. The second year I did 50 episodes a season. And last year I did not know how I was going to be able to do it. 
but I did it. I did 25 episodes a season and I'm going to hold at that, right? Um, yay. And so, um, I'm going to hold at that. I'm going to continue that. I'm going to continue to take my breaks in between seasons just because I need time to go inward and be silent. I am going to question my relationship with YouTube. So there, I have a YouTube channel, You're in Dump. Check it out. I just released three episodes that I don't know why. Those three episodes are in the, really at the top. Like it's in the, uh, it's in my top five downloads. That's weird. The last three episodes are a part of my top five downloaded, uh, episodes or viewed episodes on, on YouTube. Um, I think some of that could be, um, I did a real criticism of INTJ John. He's one of my, um, one of my favorites. Like literally he comes second to the person that I call the INTJ academic. Uh, I am, I am a super fan of his, yet I had a real criticism uh, of some content he put out. So I don't know if that criticism was popular. I don't know. Um, so I did two episodes on that and then I did one episode on solo polyamory <laughs> and because I took that episode and shared it with, um, um, there's a solo podcast, a solo poly, not solo poly, a solo podcast that I've been listening to for the past month. And in that episode was an interview between two people, people, the episode, the host, his name is Peter, I think it's McGraw. And then I don't know Lucy's last name, but Peter and Lucy did a, a had a conversation on a podcast. So I took my YouTube video and shared it with them. I don't know if it's, I don't know if they shared it with other people. I don't know what happened, but that episode is in now my top five. And so, um, I don't even think it's that special. (laughs) So I don't really know, but, um, YouTube is going to continue to be a, I'm going to continue to grow it with this project. I don't yet know how. I just feel pretty confident that that's going to happen. I don't yet know what I should be doing with YouTube during the break. Because sometimes I feel like during the break, I'm doing a lot of introspection and I'm doing a lot of learning and I must process. So I'm like, okay, I can't go on a podcast. So let me go to YouTube. So there's that. But then I feel like I'm cheating. If I'm supposed to be taking a break to go inward and listen, then shut up already. And go inward and listen, but I don't know. So I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure how YouTube is really going to mature in this project, but it is, it is on track to maturing. So there's that. I also want to let you know that I uploaded a poem. I uploaded a poem a few days ago um, on the, on the website. The website was something I started early on. But after season two, I didn't do much. I haven't done, um, um, I've not done much with it at all. It's just a good place for people. If they want to know more about me, they can go to it just to get a general sense of it. But we are at season seven and I haven't really done much with it, the website since, since season two. But a few days ago, I uploaded a poem. I've recently come to understand that I am an inward crier. Um, I cry internally, historically. Since I've been doing this project, this podcast, You're in IDOM, I have learned to be comfortable with crying outwardly. I've learned to pay attention to the sensations of my body when I need to cry. And I've learned to pause and relax and give in to that, to cry outwardly as a release, as opposed to having those intense emotions locked into my body. So that's new for me. 
But historically, I have cried inwardly. And when I'm crying inwardly, I have to process. I'm always analytical. And it turns into a poem. So I've never understood why all of my poems are deeply sad and deeply dark. And I don't, I don't publish those poems because of how dark and, and sad they are. Because that's just not who I am most of the time. I'm like, dear God, I don't want anybody to know that. Uh, but now that I really understand that those poems are written when I'm crying internally, inwardly. And um, so that makes so much sense to me. Um, I would say about five years ago, I started sharing my poetry on my other website under my under my name, my 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 what they call it, my government name. And then I do have another pseudonym. I have another alias. I have a website, but everybody knows who that is. <laughs> they know me under that alias. And so there's some there's some inward crying and some processing poetry. I didn't want to share. Even under that alias, when people know me, I just didn't want to share it there. And so I shared the poem on the Your N.I. Don website. So I don't know if I'm going to continue to do that, but it is there. I know that I'm going to be doing more with the website because I'm going to be doing more with this project. I'm starting to see it's starting to have form in terms of what it it could and will be. When I grow up, I always say when I grow up, when I grow up is when I fully walk into that, who I'm going to be in the first half of life. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, I hope that was not Freudian. Let me say that again. Who I'm going to be in the second half of life. I'm already in the second half of life, but I haven't yet matured in it. And so I believe this project is going to be heavily tied to me being mature in the second half of life. My fullness, my identity, the person I'm really meant to be. And so that this project is starting to take form as being related to that person. I'm not fully there yet, but I'm definitely en route. And so because of that, I'm going to continue this project. It is a season seven. And I'm going to now with more intention work with YouTube, the website. And there's a third thing. I'm going to start a newsletter. It's going to be, a, I'm going to experiment with having a monthly newsletter starting in September. I don't yet know how to get that to you yet. Um, so that's something that I'm working on, but um, I'll, I'll give you an update. For, so for those of you, I got about 10 of you that are really, really loyal. And so for those 10 of you, I want to reward you with, um, an up, you know, just a, just more, not just more, but, um, maybe more. I don't know if it's more authenticity because I feel like I'm already authentic, but I just want to open myself up a little more to those of you who are really dedicated to learning with me, not just watching me act a plum fool on this project. Sometimes I can be a plum fool. <laughs> it's cultural, right? You're acting a plum fool. But, um, but I hope that hopefully you are learning with me. I got some feedback on YouTube. Uh, from somebody that's new from the solo poly episode I re- released on YouTube. And I think, I don't know if it, I, I don't know why I'm assuming it was a woman. I don't know. But the person um, had gone to my, come to the podcast here to listen to the solo polyamory episode I did back in June. And she, the person said that I made a comment about not having the bandwidth to do a monogamous relationship right now. And that person said, I'm going to say they, they said 
they had to pause the episode because they had chills in their body. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's, whoa, I don't even know what to say to that. But that's, for me, if I'm learning in this project, that makes me feel damn good that somebody else is learning, that they're having a, they're having an awakening as I'm having an awakening, right? And so this project is going to control, con, uh, grow, continue to listen, check out the YouTube channel, come to my website. And those of you who are really down for it, um, stay tuned to learn how you can be a part of the newsletter. All right, y'all. Okay. Now we're 16 minutes in. When I first started this project, my introductions could last 30 minutes easily, but my, my intro was five minutes. My disclaimers are downloaded to like, like a minute to two. And I did have some housekeeping that I wanted to share with you just because I wanted to tell you that, um, I wanted to tell you that, um, that we are in season seven and what is on the horizon. And I think the last thing I do want to tell you, I don't know if you can hear it, but I can feel it. I feel fundamentally different. Um, I feel really, really different. There's been a lot of learning for me, a lot of growth, and I can't wait to share with you what I, the theory, I got a theory about why I feel like there's been this major catapulting of growth. Um, but I can feel it and, um, I'm looking forward to what season seven will be. All right, you guys, three clusters for belonging. And then there's an article. And I think I want to hit the article when I get to the third cluster. But I give myself permission to move freely in this project because it is unedited and it's unscripted. So let's start. Let's start with the first cluster, belonging shifts. And interestingly, I think that the first cluster is really tied to this thing that I said about feeling really different. I feel different. And honestly, I think what's happening, and I'm starting to have a sensation in my body. I call that the, an FI sensation. But the the wife from the husband and wife team in the Myers-Briggs community, um, you follow my podcast, you know who I'm talking about. She said to me, because I had a phone conversation with her, or I think we were on a Zoom call, and I said, I, got, I get this thing I call an FI sensation when I say something and it's like true. Something happens in my body that confirms it like, yeah, that's a truth for you. And I think because FI is tertiary for me, I'm not always sure when I'm in my truth or my values, you know. And so I've learned, I've learned within the last five years that the, my body gives a sensation. And so I call it the FI sensation. And the wife said, it could be that or S-E or F-I-S-E. And I'm like, well, that makes sense because there's some S-E phenomenon happening. So I'm like, okay, or phenomena happening or phenomenon. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so anyway, I just had a sensation about this thing of feeling, um, I feel different. I feel more mature. And I think it relates to belonging to myself. Ooh, I just feel it. I feel it. I can feel it again. I feel it. It's, that's F-I, baby. That is F-I. Ooh, it's a belonging to myself. <sighs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I think when I was reading the article that I want to read with you, one of the, one point it made was 
Mm-mm, that's not true. Yeah. And there's another article that I want to um, share in the newsletter that relates to uh, six traits. It just it relates to trauma, narcissism and trauma. And one of the, one of the experiences when you're raised in a narcissistic structure is that you are cut off from yourself. You're cut off from yourself. So this notion of coming into myself, I'm feeling it, y'all. I get, every time I say it, the sensation hits my body. This is interesting. The notion of coming into myself, growing into the woman I'm supposed to be in this second half of life, of belonging to me, makes sense as a survivor of intergenerational trauma. That makes sense. Intellectually, it does at least. Okay, so anyway... So belonging shifts. So I think that there, are, I have on paper, this is why I don't like notes. I don't like notes because this is, it, it really restricts me from being free flowing. I might just take this paper and throw it away. I'm going to try though. So belonging shift, the first cluster is, um, there's, according to the article, there's cultural belonging, familial belonging. They didn't say this, but I'm adding it. Professional belonging. And geographical belonging. When I read the article, you'll know more about it. But I think for me, the relevance of this concept of belonging is really situated in the fact that I'm going through some major shifts around belonging culturally, familially, professionally, and geographically. Let me just start with professionally because I think that's easiest. Um, I belong to an industry. So I, I, you hear me say I'm an educator and a social scientist, and that is true. But my I shouldn't say, but, but my, my, my paycheck has been tied to an industry that primarily recognizes me as an educator. That's interesting. So for a good portion of my career, before I moved into leadership, I was a social studies educator and I relied on my training as a social scientist. Then when I moved into leadership, there was a significant part of my training as a social scientist that looks at groups, social groups, because if you're going to lead people, you got to understand people as social beings. And then if you're leading within an organization, you have to understand how those social beings. Sorry, my dog started barking at the mailman. Um, but you have to, when you're leading, you not only have to understand people that you're leading as social beings, you need to understand how those social beings are interacting with each other for a particular organization, for a particular organizational purpose. And then how that organizational structure influences that group dynamic, right? Now, a lot of leaders don't understand that because they don't have the training in the social sciences, but I do, that's my um, my training as a social scientist as a, and as a leader, an educational leader, kind of gave me that. And then when I did my research and my doctoral studies, when I did my research around um, empowerment and what does it mean to be empowered and how does the social world influence that? So the, the social sciences um, showed up there. And then within the last three years, my work, my paycheck, again, takes me to, has been connecting me to doing, I've been doing what's called equity work. 
social justice work. I mean, and then you, I pull on the social sciences there. But most people, and I had a um, conversation with my aunt, most people know me as an educator. And then they struggle with me as a social scientist. Even the conversation I had with my heart coach last week, I had to tell you about that. Because she, she was really struggling with my conception of power and my, the way I negotiate power and what I'm going to allow for in terms of power and what, I, what I'm not going to allow for, even in our relationship. And I have a high degree of respect for her. But her understanding of power is more layman's, even though she's a trained practitioner. She has a more layman's understanding of power. I have a deep academic understanding of power. I mean, I have a deep, deep understanding of social power and how that shows up in how we interact. And so I think when I bring that now, that academic knowledge from the social sciences, oftentimes people are like, I don't know if they're blindsided. They don't know what to do with it because they're looking at me primarily as an educator. And that's because of how our society because of, like I said, my job, where I've worked, I've worked in schools or I've worked for educational institutions, but I was bringing in the social sciences to do that. Anyway, anyway, so <laughs> the, the professional place that I've belonged is with educators. I haven't had the opportunity to belong to a group of other social scientists, which would be amazing. Now there's a group that I want to form. On, and I've been thinking about this for so long it would be embarrassing. Well, I shouldn't say it's not embarrassing because NI DOMs are known to kind of take our time. We can, we can plan and envision a thing for a long time before we take action. That's hard for me to admit because I am so action oriented, but I'm action oriented in one domain. But I have a lot of thoughts of it. Like, oh, one day, one day I'm going to do this. One day I'm going to do this. And there's just so many, one, so many things. <laughs> but anyway, one of the things that I've been in, envisioning would be to start a group. I don't want to get into the details of the group, but it just occurred to me that that group really is about connecting to other social scientists. That's interesting. But anyway, so I've been a part of this education um, industry. It's where I hold my professional licenses. I speak the jargon. This is one of the reasons why as I start my business and I still need to stay, I need to stay solvent, you know, structurally, that still I'm going to have to work. Well, I don't want to work outside of my industry, even though now my, I'm now going to be an entrepreneur in my industry and not an employee in my industry. I don't want to work in another, I don't want to work in another industry because I love my, I love my work and I know it. I'm, I'm at an age where I don't want to study another industry to make money. I don't, I don't want to have to learn another industry, industry just to make money. So I'm trying to figure out this really complicated dance that I'm going to have to do to now be an entrepreneur in my industry and still be an employee in my industry until I'm able to be fully entrepreneurial. That's an interesting thought. Uh, anyway, anyway, so, um, so there's been a high level of belonging. And I think one of the things that I am struggling with, honestly, shifting over to being full-time entrepreneur as in, in my industry is the belonging piece. So it's August, the school year, the new school year is about to start up. There's a whole psychological, sociological, um, 
set of experiences that educators go through to get started on the school, the new school year. My neighbor, one of my neighbors is an educator and she was like, she told me, should I bought a new book bag for the school year? I was like, oh, that's cool. And then when the book bag came in the mail, she's like, can I show you my book bag? <laughs> I was like, okay. But that book bag, <laughs> some of you are listening like, really a book bag? But that book bag is symbolic of what the, what it means to be an educator. Right. And all of the demands of being an educator, correcting papers, moving, uh, being able to uh, successfully serve students um, with the materials that you need and having that on hand, having a no clear division between working at home and working at school because you bring your work home to correct papers, to do report cards, to call parents. Right. So that book bag means a lot. <laughs> so anyway. And that felt good. I knew it. I knew the importance of that book bag. She didn't have to explain it to me. She knew I got it. And so that sense of belonging there is um, really, really important to me. And I think I, I don't know why. I think that's one of the reasons this idea of belonging has surfaced for me because moving into entrepreneurship, I'm not going to necessarily have that shared I'll have it theoretically, but so yesterday I went and took a walk with someone who, when I was a principal, she was one of my teachers and not the whole walk, but a good portion of the walk was processing what happens inside of the building. Now I'm kind of removed from that, that particular building, but I still knew some of the people and I definitely knew the politics. And I think when I left, when I first left that, you guys knew when I was doing that because all of that was recorded. That was season, oh Lord, that was season four. <laughs> um, I don't know how much I even talked about it though, to be honest with you. I talked more about my job this past year and uh, in year, year three and year two, year one and year three. I don't know how much I talked about it in year two, but anyway, there was a sense of belonging that when I left that job, I lost it. And so then how does it impact my relationship? So I still have four people, three solid from that time of working for that district that I'm in, in touch with. And when we go out and we hang out initially, when we, when, when we would go out and I was no longer employed in that district, there was this strain of, that was all the talk was about, was about their world. And so my fr the friends that would say, oh, I'm so sorry. We're, we're just talking about my world. You don't work here anymore. It's no longer relevant. But I could do that because I still knew the people. Even though there was a sense of like, not longing, but I could feel a disconnect. I no longer belonged to that space. And so it was, it was a little hard for me. And so yesterday when I went for the walk, I think it was yesterday when I walked with the young lady, uh, I no longer, I no longer had that. Uh, there was a feeling of, oh man, I used to belong there. There was no nostalgia there. There was no sense of loss that I felt I have felt in the past. So that was a shift. Then I went into another job this past year. Now that was remote. So I never enter, I never was in a physical space with these people, but I had a daily life with them. And that shift was hard. Because now we're not talking every day. And now when we talk, 
There's no container that holds us together in terms of what we talk about. And so that's going to determine how we, if we will continue a relationship. Because continuing a relationship now means we have to have a new container to belong to to talk about. This is really, I don't know if you, I don't always know if you're still listening, but this is good for me because I'm really understanding why the word belonging is coming, is coming up for me. So there is a loss of that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm, that's not, that's so, the, yes, there is a loss of that, but that's actually not what I want to talk about. That's not what's relevant to me. I think what's relevant is that I now need to figure out new belonging. There it is. There it is. I need to figure out new belonging. And that's not just meeting new people. It's not just meeting new people. And it's actually not even having people. And then, oh, we're going to go out to eat. Let's go out and have, let's go have dinner together. Oh, let's go walk together. Oh, let's go have, um, let's go have drinks together. Cause I do that and I love it. I love that. And I'm very proud of myself because when I first moved back home, cause you know, from the relationship ending, I was, anyway, you have to go listen to other episodes to hear that. But I had to start all over because all of my friends, I had either, we had outgrown each other or they had, they no longer lived in my home state. It was, I had to start all over. And I'm super proud that I have different people. And I'm like, yep, let's go have, hey, we need to get on the calendar, go for a walk. Let's go and have, I have a number of people. I'm very proud of that. Yet recently I was like, but something is missing. And I'm like, what is that? What is it that I'm feeling that's missing? Because it's like, do you want to hang out with them more? I don't think that's it. I love to be like, okay, great. Talk to you next month. Talk to you next quarter. <laughs> right? And that's the whole solo poly part of me. Um, let's take the word poly out because I'm learning that that solo poly is a type of solo lifestyle. So according to Peter in this new podcast, um, he, he's theorizing that there are At least three types of poly people. And poly, so poly, solo poly is one type of solo type of person. And I find myself leaning, um, relating more to solo poly, but there's another solo person, another solo type that I'm relating a lot to as well. So I'm excited to see as I process more about being solo um, and I just kind of embrace that content. I'm curious to see where I will land if I might create a fourth um, um, possibility. But anyway, um, so as a solo person, I love coming home to my house and having that solitude and I love being in control of my own life and setting my own direction and I'm having the autonomy and the freedom. Oh my God, I love all of that. That is so me. Like solo, this solo content, where have you been all my life? Because that is so me. And I think that had I been introduced to a solo po- uh, podcast um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe even 10. I don't even know if I would have appreciated it. The reason why I can appreciate it today is because of the conflict of me trying to be me 
of me struggling and trying to move forward and being more authentic. And the more, the more authentic I am in the world, the more conflict I have. That is a fascinating parallel. The more I am authentic and I walk in that authenticity and I'm confident in it and I embrace it. And the more I even try to share the authentic me with the world, the more I'm having conflict, y'all. Damn, that's interesting. I could just, and and maybe mm, that's just interesting. I'm like, I can stay there. Maybe I'm going to stay in that point, but. I've really struggled with that conflict. Like, what the hell is happening? Why am I having all this conflict? That's why I've allowed myself to embrace the whole eight part of me in the Enneagram. Because it's not necessarily. So it's conflict. It's conflict coming from the world. Giving me pushback. Trying to get me, bring me back into the fold. You're not doing it right. You're not doing this thing called life right. Trying to chastise me, redirect me, correct me or whatever. And then the eight in me does not does not like that. <laughs> and then I push back, and and that really does create conflict. And then because I'm the common denominator, you guys have heard me say this. Because I'm the common denominator, that I'm like, yo, what is the? I haven't done it like in the last year, but I have thought like, you know, recent, you know, I'm just coming out of things, saying, why am I? Having all this conflict. So. There is so much about the solo content. That solo. This framework for being solo. This movement being for solo. Being solo. It's it's really, really. Not only speaking to me. But it's providing like a calm. It's like a bomb. It's a bomb. It's a bomb. That's deep. And um, and I think because it is helping me to understand <laughs> the social world. And even though you hear me talking about the matrix as a social world, you hear me saying these social scripts. We have the cell, the episode, which is, I haven't listened to it yet. So I don't know if maybe that episode doesn't come out right. Because I'm like, y'all, you guys are not giving me any love in that episode. But I think... Unless there's something wrong with the audio, I think it's a great episode because it gives a metaphor for understanding the social world. And when we talk about belonging and being solo and all of that, even when we talk about personality theory, it's all happening within a social context. So if you don't have the if you don't have a framework for understanding the social context, how in the hell are you going to understand who you are? In that social context, your understanding of the self is incomplete without a framework for the social con for the social world. So go to that episode. I'm going to go listen to it this week just to make sure that there's not a, um, a technical audio component to it. Because I'm like, y'all not giving it any love. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? Anyway, so. Yeah, so the solo, the solo content that I'm taking in, that I'm learning about this movement, it's just so soothing. It's just so settling for me. Um, but yeah, um, let me try to go back to this professional belonging. So, so I think I had moved from, so in this professional belonging, I have a set, I have a community that I, I belong to something bigger. 
So the relationships that I'm having, the time I'm spending with people isn't, and, and honestly, the other thing that I had to come to terms with is that most of my social comes from my work. And I'm okay with that. There was a time where I allowed people to, who tried to give me pushback to say that you're not doing it right, who gave me pushback. And then I was like, okay, I'm not supposed to have social through work. I'm supposed to have social outside of work. The problem with me being an INTJ, my brain breaks down when I'm trying to do social with people outside of work because unless, like, what are we talking about? What? <laughs> I don't want to talk about your kids. I don't want to talk about your lover all the time. Oh, um, I have to tell y'all this. And I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole. So I met somebody. I've really, really been trying. I'm really trying. I'm really trying, right? Can't say You can't say you sell a poly and you don't want to have any relationship, any romantic relationships, you know, because then you're self-partnered. Because there's a difference between being solo poly and self-partnered. And I don't think I'm self-partnered. I think I, you know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not like resistant to the idea of being in a romantic relationship. So it's just a lot of labor for me. <laughs> it is not, the, the beginning parts of building relationship is just not fun for me. It's not. So anyway, that's work. It's so much work that I actually have to, I have a work template where I track my work so I can, I literally have meeting people as part of in my work template so I can give myself credit for that because it's it's labor. It is labor. So I meet a person and sex is a big deal to that individual. Oh my God. Now you have to go back and listen to my last episode on solo not my last, but the last the second to the last on solo polyamory. Whatever. It was in June. And you heard me really struggling with talking about sex because I don't talk about sex in this project. I don't talk about sex, period. And now this person wants to have an extended conversation about sex. There's more to that conversation I do want to break down and share with you all. But that's a different, it would take me off course. But I was just like, dear God, <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on this call because I, I'm not, I'm not, in, <laughs> I'm not enjoying this conversation, right? <laughs> but <laughs> anyway. So I've come to, 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 I've come to accept, I love talking about work and it's probably not work in terms of being employed. I love my content. I'm an academic. I love talking about academic social science concepts. I love talking about education concepts. And I love that when I'm socializing, I get a chance to engage in those concepts as part of the, as part of my social experience. I enjoy that. So I don't, I no longer feel bad about that, but I literally had somebody that was like, not somebody. I had several people like, that's not, you're, you're trying to socialize with these people at work and that's not what you should be doing. No. And I actually think employment when I went back, so I was an entrepreneur before, then I had to go back into employment with it for a job. I totally saw that job every day as social. That was social for me. Which is another thing, which is another reason why I think I'm struggling with shifting full time into entrepreneurship because I'm not going to get my social that way. I mean, I'll get a different kind of social, but that employment social was perfect for, in that regard. So it was just not, it was horrible in other regards. But anyway, um, so yeah, so 
professional belonging for me is about the social it's it it it's about it's about uh, having a social experience inside of some uh, intellectual um, uh, I don't know I don't want to say intellectual pursuits maybe intellectual play intellectual pleasure right and so um, I get that so now I'm not I don't have that moving into the entrepreneur in entrepreneurial lifestyle. I think I'm, but I, I have some ideas of how I'm going to build a new container of belonging. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm so sorry. Cause I'm struggling here. I do want to move on, but there's something I'm struggling with articulating. So let me try it one more time. So when I'm doing employment and I'm doing social and intellectual pleasure, it's all within the container of something bigger that unites us, the organization that we work with. That organization gives direction. That organization can be an adjutant or an irritant. It doesn't matter. It unites us. When you're entrepreneurial, you don't have anything that's uniting you in a concrete way as an, in an organization, especially if that organization requires you to work in a building. My sister's job, my sister got a job that was remote and then she was notified two months ago that they're moving her back into the office. She's frustrated. She's not going to say back in the office because that job was never about being in an office, but she's had other jobs where she was required to be in the office. But in this job, she was, it was remote. And now she was notified that she has to go into the office because she, they want the, they want unity and they want coworkers to feel more connected. Because it's the physic, physical space that will also unite you. And that's geography on, this, on the notes for belonging. Your physical space and place play a role in unifying people and, and giving them that sense of belonging. And so even though I can, like, so one of the things I'm thinking about is joining some entrepreneurial groups. Yeah. I can join those groups and we could come together and have something to talk about, but we don't have and we don't have a locale, a physical space that unites us. This is I, I don't know if I've lost you all, but this is actually really good for me because I'm really struggling with why do I keep looking over my shoulder at the employment world when I know that in, that employment isn't good for me? It's not Intellectually, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't feed my entrepreneurial spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't, excuse me, it doesn't feed my spirit of innovation. It doesn't spirit, it doesn't feed my spirit of, um, intellectual freedom, intellectual uh, pursuits. It definitely, definitely doesn't feed me as an eight. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's hard on me as an INTJ, but I think INTJs are okay with working in, and, and, but eights, most, most eights are on their own. And so it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me to be in an employment situation. I shouldn't say it completely, but it's got to be, it's got to be the right arrangement. But I think what it does is that it provides me with the container 
it provides me with this unifying uh, entity that connects the social, the people for my social. That's really fascinating. Anyway, so that's the professional shift. Then, then there's the um, geographical. I think um, me being um, a person that has tried to live in other states and I've never fully allowed myself to live in another state. I've always held on, you know, by, by locational, right? Because there's something about my hometown that is a significant part of my sense of self. Because it's something about the geography. There are features that I never knew I took for granted. There are geographical features in my home town, but I think I could say my home state, that when I lived in other places, I felt a loss. I felt an absence of those. Now, there were things that they gave me. There were, there were, there were new geographies. that I was like, oh, this is cool. I like this. But those new geographies were more sensational for me. They were more SE, that's a cognitive function, extroverted sensing. But they didn't really, those, those new geographies don't, did not influence my identity. My identity is connected to my home region for a number of reasons. So I belong to this space with other people whose identity are connected to these geographies. And so going to another location and as much, as much as my hometown does not feed me, um, um, in some very critical ways, crucial. And I've got to reconcile that tension. It, it does feed me. It feeds the geographic me, the, the geographic, nah. It does feed the identity part of me that's connected to my, to the geographies of my hometown. So that's, even if I don't have it resolved, just naming that in this reflection is really powerful. I'm like, I'm putting words to things that I have not done before, that I've not put words to before. So I'm really, really encouraged. Um, One of the, I read an article once about NI DOMs. And so the NI DOMs are either INTJs or INFJs. And uh, that most NI DOMs like to live in spaces where there's a lot of, I say, sky, green, not buildings. It's cluttery, right? Because we like that openness, which is true. So... I'm not living in a space like that right now, which is really fascinating. But I got this, I have a porch that's pretty sizable. Like I got a, I could, it's sizable. I could have about six people on it at least. But I've been putting more and more green plant life on the porch. And that's giving me the greenery. It's, it's, it's a really interesting way that I'm compensating. <laughs> um, but I don't have a lot of sky. Um, and so that's something I have, as I'm thinking about buying a house, like that's something I have to contend with. Um, but in other places, um, let me see. Ah, there's so much about the geography. I didn't think that the geography one would be so rich for me, but I feel like there is a lot of belonging, sense of belonging 
that I have connected by way of geography that I I'm going to have to process a, a little more. But anyway, that's that. The third uh the third part of belonging that I'm going through is shift. So there's a professional shift of belonging that I'm having. There's a geographical shift of belonging that I'm dealing with in terms of I don't have my sky. I don't have my I'm, I'm compensating for the green, but I don't really want to be in this town anymore. I, I really do want to leave it, but I've got to contend with a loss. I'm going to have a loss of self that was connected to the geographies of, of my region. So I've got to contend with that. Um, and then the third one would be familial. And um, because I made a decision in June that I was going to stop doing intimacy with my family. And that has been very difficult. I'm still holding to it, but it has been difficult. And I think I'm really, really grieving. Out of all of the other losses, the other shifts that I talked about, the, the professional and the geographical, those, those shifts have come with a sense of loss. This familial shift is creating grief. There's deep grief, deep sadness. So you listen to me, you might say, well, don't do that. Don't create a sense of grief. Don't create a situation that would make you grieve. Well, the flip side of that then would be to then be in intimate spaces with my family and not be able to move into the woman that I believe I'm supposed to be. Then to have to be at loss with myself. And I don't want to do that either. And I have been wanting and praying and hoping and fighting and every every trick imaginable to try to get my family to grow with me. And um, and uh, it's just that's not it's not it's not even healthy for them for me to do that. That's something that I'm I've been coming to terms with. I, I realized that with my parents about five years ago, like you got to let them go. You got to, this expectation that you've had, you've had for them, you've held them, held them accountable for, you got to let that go. They're not going to do it. And it's not fair to them to force them into your expectations. And so I did that for the most part. The problem is that they didn't let me go with their expectations. That's the problem, but that's a separate episode. And then recently, um, um, my mom, I'll say this, recently within the last week, actually, my mom said, I made a comment. I said, Ma, I think you, I said, Ma, I think you wrestle with anxiety. And I'm excited to share that with her because like, once you know that, like, there, there are these things that are stressing you out and there are behaviors that, that you are in, like, there's a loop. And I'm like, at the root of that is anxiety. And I'm thinking that was going to be liberating, liberating for her. Because now that she knows that that's anxiety, then she can understand why this is an irritant. And then she's like, you can put some things in motion to solve that. And she looked at me and she said, when are you going to stop learning and then applying it to us? Or to me? That hit me, y'all. That was powerful. It was very well framed. It's been on loop in my head. I have a little bit of sadness for that. 
Because what is, and I, they say this about INTJs, being in a relationship with us is difficult because we're always growing. We're always trying to improve, always. You never arrive with an INTJ. It's always about growing. I don't know if INFJs are like that. And uh, and I, was, I felt sad for her because I'm like, man, that's true. She's on the receiving end of someone that is like, like I'm hyper into learning and growing. I don't even like the word hyper, but I think in this in this context, it would work. And then when I learn something, I'm so excited about it. I take it back. But I, I, I didn't take it back the way I had in the past. Like, you need to be better. I was just like, this could be what's going on. And she said, when are you going to stop learning and applying it to me? Damn, that was, that was powerful. Sad, sad, though. Like, I'm sorry. I'll just keep my learning to my damn self. <laughs> but I think what I struggle with is as a person who's committed to growth and I'm and learning and development, it's hard for me to stay in an environment that is not only harmful, but stagnant. It's hard. That's hard for me. That's antithetical to how I'm wired. It's just antithetical to I'm I'm learning a lot of a lot of self parenting. Hear a lot of growth because I'm finally able to learn more about me and the whys of me. So anyway, I have to step away from that. You know, that intimacy for me is going to be about growth. And I don't think my sister would mind me saying this. My sister said that her therapist just told her that she had some avoidance that she was dealing with. And I could see it. I see it. I I haven't said to my sister, I agree. Because I feel like that's personal. I don't want to be intrusive in somebody else's therapy. It's funny, I've got three people in my life who have started therapy in the last two months. And how that is showing up in our relationships when we talk. Um, it's interesting. I do therapy. And so, so you know, I'm pretty sure that's why they, they're comfortable sharing that with me. But um, I don't, you know, I wouldn't want you weighing in on what I'm how I'm growing in therapy, I'm definitely not going to weigh in on for you unless you ask me or unless I feel like it's really, really essential. Well, my sister is a special situation because we come from the same family, come from the same intergenerational trauma. We're both going through this very difficult season with our this person. And so I bring that up because I've come to really, I've been having to really deal with some real deep grief of acceptance that my sister is not able to do intimacy with me. And she does it more with me uh, than my mom or with other people in my family. So that's a celebration, but not the deep, you know, and I'm not talking about, of course, I'm not talking about sexual intimacy, but the deep emotional, psychological intimacy, I crave it. And so anyway, I'm trying to, not only am I trying to move into the woman of my own dreams, move into my second half of life being me. I'm trying to let other people be them, right? Do you, boo, do you. And celebrating that and respecting that. That's what that's what solo poly is for me. Like having multiple relationships and then you respect the thing, the world that I'm building for me, and I'm going to respect the world that you're building for you. And hopefully we can come together where we come together. 
And that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to building intimate relationships with people where we intersect at this very meaningful place. And we intersect there, we celebrate that, and we grow it. And then be be respectful, like um, like the individual who wanted to talk to me about sex for 30, 45 minutes. It wasn't even erotic. It wasn't even an erotic, like, let's get dirty. It wasn't even that kind of, it was, it was an, kind of like an academic conversation on sex. An individual talked about reading lots of books. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll read one of those books. Because <laughs> intellectually, I love reading and I love learning. So, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> but... So, uh, so, so the individual is like, well, I'm not going to be able to do a relationship with someone where sex is not a big thing. I celebrated that comment. That was well said. Like I celebrated that comment because that person knew had, uh, a really clear sense of self clear sense of need and boundaries, confidence in articulating it, communication skills to put it out there, all of that. All of that. Now, that's sexy to me. That's a sex. That's sexy. <laughs> but, that, but it ain't me. <laughs> and I was just like, I celebrate you, but that's not me. It's not. And it's okay. Damn, that's good. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this whole solo stuff because then you you enter into conversations like that and you start negotiating. But you got to be self aware. You got to be confident. You got to be mature to say, "Yo, that's good for you." High five. Now back up. (laughs) So anyway, so that's the 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 familial shift is is a is a it's a shift in how I am having uh, holding to some expectations for myself and releasing people when they can't meet those expectations but um but it releasing people from those expectations this is what's different cuz i've done this before in the past with people like well i can't hold you to my expectation and then what i find myself doing is being governed or regulated by their expectations of me because i had these high expectations when i was younger i was fierce about setting strong boundaries and I was fierce that's why it's really fascinating to hear me say I gotta learn that all over again well what happened was that I learned that that was I for me I just learned it was intrusive it was intrusive for me to start telling you who you need to be I feel like that's intrusive to tell somebody else who they need to be mm-mm, mm-mm. so I stopped doing that well, I realized the moment I started, stopped doing that and I'm still in relationship with these people. Guess what happened? They were doing it to me. I might have to do this episode into two parts because there's so much. I haven't even gotten to the article. I'm not even, I haven't, I'm still in the first cluster. I'm seriously in the first cluster. All right, the last shift of belonging, and then I'm going to think about closing this episode because I can't believe it. So much for me, at least. It's good for me. I hope it's good for you, boo. <laughs> the last uh, point in this first cluster for is cultural shift. And I think I saved this one for last because this one is the hardest for me to understand. It is the one that I've been wrestling with consciously for a while 
I would say for five years. And then in the last two years, I've been honest. The first, when I first started dealing with this idea of cultural shift, I was like, there's, there are so many like no-nos. I, I want to say taboo. There's so many taboos around culture in my culture, things that you just can't consider that when I found myself processing it, I was like, in, like, oh, don't want to, don't want to go there because I, I had embraced that there are these no-nos. And then in the last two years, I started going, wait a minute, let's just be honest. It's, it's, it is what it is. It is what it is. You just got to be honest. And so it, I haven't yet found the resolution. But And so when I say culture, that's a big word. It could be culture. It could be regional. Um, I think I've said this to you all before. I'm a Midwesterner. When Midwesterner, there's a culture that is associated with that, along with some geographies. Um, I'm black. I'm an African-American. There's culture with that. But that's complicated because at blacks, we're not a mono, monolith. So while there is this culture, there is some, there is a component that unifies us. There's so much variance, so much diversity about being African-American. That it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to treat the African-American demographic as though it is one culture because it is not. Yet, there are some clear unifiers. For example, this is why I say I'm African-American and not black. I've said this to you guys before. It's because I come from a lineage of, of enforced um, cattle slavery, brutal slavery. That's, that's part of my lineage, my ancestry, and there's a, there's some science that relates to how your history is in your sex, cellular makeup, biology. That's not my area. I'm a social scientist, not a in, uh, biologist. So I, clearly, I don't know. I just, I cannot talk intelligently here. <laughs> But there's some research that talks about some of the stuff in the past still being in your cellular makeup. So that's a big deal. So that's a piece that unifies me culturally. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it's music, but not music, um, art, because art comes out of the suffering. You know, art comes from the lived reality. And so that lived reality creates an affinity to the art that's produced from the suffering. So there's that. Um, and there is obviously there's the politics. Now, I don't care. You're not going to find many, not many. You have some, especially as you look at, <laughs> you look at the, um, MAGA black people, <laughs> MAGA make the MAGA, um, the MAGA Republicans. And when you see MAGA black people in that world, that's funny to me, but it's, I try not to be, I try not to be disrespectful because everybody has a right to hold the political views that they have. Like I believe that, especially as a social studies teacher, like I'm, I'm a champion for your, for you to have your own clear sense of politics, even when those politics differ from mine. Like, I value more 
political freedom than I do my own political, uh, political values. Does that make sense? In terms of a value stack, a hierarchy, I value more political freedom than I do my own politics. So <laughs> black MAGA, I'm like, that's, I'm, I'm not going to degrade it. It's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but yay, if that works for you, yay, I support that. But outside of black MAGA Republicans, there's pretty much a consistent political orientation within among African Americans. There's variance, but it, it's not, it won't take hard. It won't take long from, um, two black people who are strangers to find a place of unity, a political unity. Uh, you know, there's variance again, like there's a variance on how we handle class, how we handle gender, how we handle sexuality, how we handle education, how we handle religion. Oh my gosh. Right. Um, but once you get past those, there is a route that you can get to fairly easily in terms of agreement and unity. Okay. And in that route is our issues around values around solidarity, um, safety and security. So when you start going to those outer layers of variance, sex, gender, sexuality, gender, race, sex, excuse me, sexuality, gender, class, religion, even some geography, it causes variance and it, and it changes, it challenges what it means. It means to say the African-American culture. Does that make sense? Which is why I don't want to say culture in African-American culture. So when I say my culture, I think what I'm talking about is something that relates to my region, my race, I don't know. I want to say my profession and my, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that this thing that I'm this okay. Scratch. I don't, don't scratch that. Cause all of that, everything I just said is valid. I just, I'm, this is the most abstract concept for me to process. So I, I'm, I'm struggling here. I think what I'm saying is an anchor so my dad, my late father, when he took me, when he took us fishing, we would be in the boat and we, we were either going to drift or we we're going to be anchored. When we were anchored, the air, there was an anchor put down on the water and it kept us in a standstill. When he wanted to drift, because a certain type of fishing that you do when you the bait is in the water and it's moving with the other fish. We drifted and the anchor was removed. So there is an anchor <laughs> in the African-American experience that is expected to be honored. And when that anchor is violated, you are put on the outside of that African-American experience, which is incredibly difficult because you're still African-American. And I think that goes to the point about mega, the MAGA, the black MAGA Republicans. So Af Af blacks who are um, 
not Republican, even though there are some people who give black Republicans a hard time, me being more moderate, I've been accused of being a black Republican. Like I've been, there have been a situation, situations where people tried to shame me for being a black a conservative, but I'm not, I have some moderate views, but I'm not, I never, I'm not a, I don't consider, consider myself a conservative. So the shaming that they were trying to do just never landed because of like, it just didn't bother me. <laughs> you know, it, anyway, but, um, so I'm not talking about black conservatives. I'm talking about black MAGA conservatives, black MAGA Republicans rather. Cause even, I don't think that those, those, I don't think MAGA Republicans are really conservative. I don't think, I think that there's some parts of that, them that are conservative, but anyway, anyway, cause I don't know who's listening to me right now, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, I think that when you look at that, that there are people who feel like that those black MAGA Republicans have violated this core anchor to the African-American experience. And so there's some alienation that happens when you violate the, the anchor. There is some alienation that will happen. Some isolation, some shaming, because it is the, it is the attempt to bring those people back into the fold. And so, so it's all about that. At the end of the day, it's all about security and safety in tandem with the political experiences of being black. So it's not just slavery. You got slavery. You got Jim Crow. You got uh, redlining. You got the prison industrial complex. You got poor education. Like there are these, there are a number of political experiences that African Americans have that unite us politically. And I'd have a conversation with anybody about that. Now, what you do with that experience is fine. But there are some structural um, pillars in our, in our country, in the United States. There are some political uh, pillars that we've had to experience by way of being African-American. So I understand the anchor is all I'm trying to say. I understand the anchor for safety. I think a lot of times that anchor is set around the majority, the majority, who's the, you know, so, so then you can be a minority within a minority group. So the easiest thing for me to explain is that the majority of people are censors in the Myers-Briggs world there you have censors and you have intuitives. 75% of the, the pop, general population are called censors. I would imagine that same to be true for African-Americans, if not higher. Because if you think about how African-Americans came into the United States by way of a, the slave trade, our pathway into the United States was through a highly sense, was a sensory route. The parts of the country that were more, where you have more censors there. So if the average person is, the, the average, the population is, how do you say it? The average population is 75% sensory. Then you take the states in the South that are higher sensors. Then, and then you say African Americans came into, we came into the country through that, through those states. There's an argument that could be made that African Americans are more sensory based. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. I, I mean, if you have data on that, I'd love to hear it. But I'm just kind of using some logic here, trying to at least. So if the majority of African-Americans are censored and then you have an intuitive, that intuitive shows up differently and can be a threat to the anchor. I'm a, I'm a black intuitive. And 
being a woman and as a woman, I'm supposed to be a feeler because most women are feelers. I'm a thinker. I'm an INTJ. That's another way I threaten the anchor. So those are the things that are I'm come I've been coming to terms with that make me very different and has made me to be a threat to the anchor, which has also made me cling to my family a little more. Whereas other people, as they tried to come out of an inter from trauma, they would have moved into a new space. It was hard for me because I still value being African American. There's nothing about me that's like doesn't want to be black. Nothing. So. I haven't been able to move into building a new community because of that, the way that I show up different to the anchor. Okay. Now let's factor in my education. All right. I'm now I have three degrees. I'm I'm a fairly educated woman and I need to, because somebody said they had three degrees. I need to clarify just for the sake of this conversation. I don't mean to sound like a snob. I'm sitting with, you know, I have three degrees with a doctorate with a PhD to be a, to be exact. Um, and so that the PhD is a specific type of doctorate and we can talk about that another time. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I'm such a competitor because I was talking to somebody like, well, I have three degrees. I'm like, but your three degrees, it's not my three degrees, but then I'm a, cause you have, you have a bachelor's and two masters. Let me go get a second master. So I'm thinking about getting a second master's either um, either in theology or business, more than likely it's going to be theology. I don't think it's going to be sociology. I've thought about that, but anyway, <sighs> anyway, so, um, so my education sets, you know, and then if that anchor is grounded in a lot of tradition and not grounded in like education, especially particularly higher education, then my education could be a threat to the anchor. I don't really see my education being as much of a threat as more of my intuition is a threat and my thinking side. Um, and then heaven forbid I come out as solo-ish, you know, which I've been playing around with it. And it's a pure threat to monogamy. And so that if that anchor, which it is in the African-American culture, is grounded in monogamy, good grace. Good grief. Like, that's another way I'm going to be a threat. Right? So then my belonging, a place of belonging, I'm losing that. And I've been, and I'm, I'm going to close here because I'm coming to some real clarity. And I didn't even, I didn't even read the article. I'm sorry. Um, but it's, I tweeted it and I will. Maybe I'll do a YouTube video on that one where I can get just right into the substance of that article. I don't know, but um, I think that was—I think that's what I'm going to try to do if I can keep it to 15 minutes. But this is where I want to close. One of the things that I have become painfully aware of, especially as I'm moving into the second half of life, and I'm really excited and very proud of this maturity that's happening. I'm really excited about my. My different friends. I don't have any friend groups. That might help to have friend groups. That might give me a container. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. I don't have any friend friend groups, but I do have friends. God, that's so good. Um, is that I have? I I feel like I'm having a higher level of solitude than I than I would want. Like so, I'm already like solitude is important to me. Um. 
but I would say I need a moderate level of, I, I need a healthy dose of, uh, solitude. I don't need a heightened or high level of solitude. I don't. So I, I don't even think I have a high level of solitude. I, I have a higher level of solitude than I prefer, but I don't think it's still, I don't think it's too high right now. I just think it's higher than what I would want. But I think the real issue is that I don't know how to fix it. Because I'm also, I'm at a place of racial fatigue. My world the last two years has been predominantly white. And uh, dealing with the navigating the politics of being a non-conforming black woman in those white spaces. Because you can be black in those white spaces and then try to mimic and mirror the norms in those white spaces. As a non-conforming person, I don't. I don't mimic and mirror whiteness. I celebrate. I'm like I, I endorse. I'm, I have white friends, right? So I'm okay with you. You, you're being white, but I am not trying to sanitize my my cultural experiences, my cultural beliefs, just to take on yours for the sake of belonging. So I've been in white spaces, but I haven't fully belonged. I don't belong to the white ethos, if that's if you understand that. There's an ethos about being white. Not all white people are in those. I just had, I had uh, drinks with somebody a week ago, and she was like, "Somebody was like, are you mixed? Are you Latina?" She's like, "No, I'm a white girl. I'm white." But there was so much culturally about her that put her outside of the white ethos, which is why the person was trying to give her, make her bicultural or biracial. She's like, nope, I'm a pure white girl. <laughs> I just laugh. Um, so all, you know, all white people are not in the white ethos either, but there's a white ethos that I've been a part of for two years and it has created a tax and I'm tired. So the things that I would normally do in white spaces for my recreation, because there are things I do, I love country music. That naturally, that's going to put me in white spaces. I don't even do that as much because I'm, t- I'm dealing with a fatigue. That there's a real tax that I've had. And I'm just tired. So I'm, I'm at home more. I'm not. And then when I do go, in, when I do go out, because I am still doing karaoke, I'm just not doing it as much as I used to. I'm not even going through the act of befriending people. Like my befriending apparatus is tired. Um, so... Even when I think about taking, creating some social groups, which is something I really believe I have to do, when I know I believe that those social groups are going to be predominantly white, which is okay and on one hand, but because I'm dealing with a, a fatigue from the the white ethos, I'm not excited about that. So it, so what's happening is that I'm not. I don't really know what to do about the social, which is one of the reasons why I want to leave my re- my state to go in places, go places where there's real diversity. Because right, I'm in a highly segregated. High, I'm in one of I'm in a city that's in the top, if I believe the top three segregated cities in the, in the country, and so um, it just really has an impact on my social and my belonging. And so as I close here. Um, I thank you if you're still listening. This is an incredibly uh, long reflection, not just because I've been on break and I needed to process, but this belonging piece has been something that has been needling me in the last few weeks. And it wasn't until yesterday I said, I want the very first episode of season seven to be about belonging. There's more for me to process. 
because there's something I want to grow in. Especially, you know, I keep laughing because I'm like, you cannot be solo poly and you don't have any relationships, you know. So it's something that I want to address. Yes, I'm going through it. There's a professional professional shift in my belonging. There's a familial shift in my belonging that I'm going through. I'd like for there to be a geographical shift in my belonging. I'm not sure if how when, when that's going to be. And then there's a cultural shift in my belonging. So I'm going through some shifts around belonging, and I'm going to have to belong to something else. You can't just walk away from belonging. I'm getting an FI sensation right now. So if I cry, I'm going to allow myself to cry. You, I can't just walk away from belonging because those places of belonging no longer suit me and not have something new to walk into. And that is where I'm, that's, that is what I think the takeaway from this reflection is for me. Oh God, I really wanted to read that article to you, but I'm going to, I'm going to read that article. Go to YouTube. Um, I don't know when I'll get it uploaded, loaded, but I will do that for you. Okay. But I said, I'm going to do better with expanding this project. And so. I'm not going to expand it by numbers in the, in the podcast, but we're going to expand it by YouTube and the website and the, and the newsletter that's to come in September. Hey, you guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart or a like. <laughs> I realize all, you can't do a heart on YouTube, but you can do a like. Um, if this conversation about belonging and geography and family and culture and trauma and race and professional, you know, being educated, being social scientist, that there's a lot about solo poly, this polyamory, excuse me, solo polyamory, being solo. If any of that connects to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com because I am there now. I'm going to be doing more there. But more and more with the newsletter. So I'm, not, I'm doing a little bit more with the uh, website, but more with the with the uh, with the newsletter. You can also find me on Twitter, here and I Dom One. I'm going to be sharing more of my links in the newsletter because I usually, when I read an article, I always share it out via Twitter. I'm going to put most of those links in the newsletter. I'll put some in Twitter land, but I'm going to share those links for people who are really here with me. Um. So just be prepared for that. But I am still, I still have an account. You're going to find me there. Or you can find me on YouTube or Facebook at your NIDOM. Let me keep, oh, and if my moving about has caused some randomness in you. Oh, shoot, I did that all wrong, didn't I? If this conversation about the belonging and the, the different ways I talk today, if it connects to a conversation you had in the world, please take this link and share with those participants. And if my moving about has caused some randomness in you, you can find me on those platforms. I'm, I'm, Feeling scattered, so maybe I said it already. You can find me on those website, on those platforms, okay? Let me give you your assignment so I can get off and give my brain a break. Hold on. Let me say that better. Let me, let me, so I can get off of this website, off of this podcast. That didn't sound right. So anyway, <laughs> you're talking about sex. That did not sound right. Let me get off of this podcast, okay? So I'll be right back. So naturally, it would make sense for me to ask you a question about belonging. Like, what do you belong to? Like, you know, culturally, what is your belonging ship? You know, because you belong to multiple spaces. What is your familial belonging? What is your professional belonging? What is your geographical belonging? Naturally, I can ask you that. Um, but for whatever reason, I want to ask. So, so let's just say that's part one. That's question number one. What is your belonging ship? Consider your belonging ship, S-H-I-P. And then consider your belonging shift, 
S-H-I-F-T. All right. And then I would say, if you, I think the question I want to ask you is, have you ever had to move away from something and you didn't have anything to move into and you had to really figure that out? And for some of you, that might be relevant. You might need to move away from some situations. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an organization. Maybe it's a home. You need to move away from that, but you haven't been able to do that because you don't have something else to move into. And so then you keep holding on. And that holding on could be unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Especially if you if 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 you're you're set to grow, if there's some growth that you need to do, you're not going to be able to grow holding on to something that you've outgrown. When you outgrow a container, you need to move into a new container. Sometimes that's difficult when we don't have yet know the new container that we're supposed to move into. Hence my situation. So hopefully you'll consider the the have you outgrown a, a space. And you're struggling with identifying what to grow into. I encourage you to do this journey with me because that's what I'll be processing uh, more of, more of or more about. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.